For another perspective on this complex field, I met with Dr. Walter Stadler, who began by providing an overview of where we are today. If we look at the big picture here, there are two classes of agents that are effective in metastatic renal cancer, the VEGF pathway-directed agents and the mTOR-directed agents. And for the former, there are the VEGF binding agents, of which Bevacizumab was just approved, and there's at least one other VEGF binding agent under investigation, VEGF-TRAP, also now known generically as a flibercept. And then there is a whole slew of the VEGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And from the second category, the mTOR inhibitors, there are two approved agents, Tempsarolimus and Everolimus, and several additional investigational agents. And I think I would say from a big picture, it's not clear how the different mTOR agents differentiate themselves or how the different VEGF pathway inhibitors differentiate themselves. Just to focus in on VEGF trap, how exactly does it work and how does it compare sort of mechanistically to what happens with bevacizumab? So VEGF trap is a bioengineered molecule that is made up of the VEGF receptor portion of two of the VEGF receptors that is then molecularly linked to a FC portion of the immunoglobulin region and therefore has essentially a more potent binding portion than the bevacizumab immunoglobulin antibody. There is at least some theoretical advantage to that more potent binding. It also has a broader spectrum of VEGF isoforms that it binds, which could also have some at least theoretical advantages. But I guess in both instances, essentially you're soaking up the ligand, the VEGF? In both cases, you're soaking up the what is more accurately termed the ligands, considering that VEGF is made up of more than one isoform. Hmm. What do we know in terms of clinical trial data with this agent? So phase one studies have been done, suggesting that the toxicities are very similar to what one would expect with bevacizumab. And there have also been some small phase two trials that have shown similar activity in the sense that We see some tumor shrinkages, and we see some apparent stabilization of the disease. Those trials have not been large enough to make any kind of comparative statements. How are you thinking through yourself first-line therapy now that bevacizumab has been approved? It's a good question. I'm not sure how to think of it since we have a number of different agents that are out there. I guess my statement would be, that the bevacizumab trials that were done that led to its approval were all a combination of bevacizumab and interferon. And there is very little data in the first-line setting as to whether bevacizumab by itself is just as good. So therefore, I would say that if bevacizumab is used in the first-line setting, it should be used with interferon. And when we use that combination... I'm not sure what to think about in terms of toxicity in comparison to the VEGF tyrosine kinases. The other thing that I would say is that at least with the drug sunitinib, that's the trial where we've come the closest to demonstrating a true survival advantage. 
So right now, how do you usually think through first-line therapy off-protocol, and what kind of studies do you have right now for patients in that situation? So off-protocol in patients with good prognosis disease, I would think that sunitinib remains a standard first-line therapy with serafinib and the combination of bevacizumab and interferon being useful alternatives. And for younger individuals who have good cardiorespiratory status, one should think about high-dose IL-2. Those with poor prognosis disease, I think that the data suggests that the Tempsarolimus is the first line of therapy. In the protocol setting, interestingly, we at our center have opened only the cooperative group study looking at various combinations of therapies, and we have not accrued well to that study because there's less reason for patients to come to the academic centers. Can you review the design of that study? So that's a study that has four arms, one arm of bevacizumab alone, a combination of bevacizumab and temsorolimus, a combination of serafinib and temsorolimus, and a combination of serafinib and bevacizumab. You know, that really leads into the issue of combinations of biologic agents. What do we know about that question, and including the three combinations being studied there? Well, what we know is that more drugs cause more toxicity. Your mother told you that drugs are bad, so I think that we do know that when we increase the number of drugs, we increase the toxicity. I think that there are some interesting suggestions from the Phase two trials that response rate is somewhat higher, or at least could be higher. I think, however, that with multiple agents on the market and the demonstration that sequential therapy is also effective, I think that the jury remains out as to whether combination therapy truly will improve overall outcome for patients. I guess I've heard a pretty consistent statement from investigators that any of these combinations really is not to be used outside a protocol setting. Do you support that? I would support that. I think that certain combinations, and certainly the combination of zinitinib and bevacizumab, can be very toxic, and that latter combination has even been fatal. You talked about attempts to look at new VEGF TKIs. Could you talk about what some of those agents are and what's been seen up to this point? So the agent that's the furthest long in development is pazopinib. That's gone through a phase three trial that was presented at ASCO. And in comparison to placebo, did, like the others, show a dramatic improvement in time to progression. Other drugs that are out there are excitinib, which is undergoing a trial versus serafinib in patients who have had prior sunitinib. An additional drug is sidarinib, formerly known as AZ2171, that, as far as I know, is not undergoing further development in renal cancer, although a phase two study has been done. What do we know about pazopinib first, comparing it indirectly in terms of efficacy as well as toxicity to, for example, sunitinib or serafinib? So from an efficacy standpoint, it looks very similar to sunitinib. From a toxicity standpoint, it appears to have less skin toxicity and appears to have less gastrointestinal toxicity. There is a larger comparative trial, sunitinib versus pazopinib, that is in process, and I guess we'll see whether those impressions hold out. 
What about fatigue and also liver function abnormalities? With fatigue, they're probably fairly similar. It's a little bit hard to tell from the data that's been presented. There does seem to be somewhat more liver toxicity with pizopinib than was seen with sinitinib, once again, comparing across trials rather than directly. Another thing I meant to ask you, what do we know in terms of sunitinib and actual cardiac function related to heart failure as opposed to just producing hypertension? So the hypertension is one aspect, but sunitinib appears to be relatively unique in regards to causing a true myocardial dysfunction where we see patients that have marked drops in their ejection fraction without any evident cardiovascular problems. And many of those patients, the myocardial dysfunction appears to be at least partially reversible. And is that seen with serafinib or pizopinib or exitinib? So it's not been seen with serafinib. There have been a handful of case reports, but it's not been seen consistently with serafinib. It was not reported in the phase three trial of pizopinib but that doesn't mean it won't occur in a larger subset of patients. And I think that with exitinib, there's just simply not enough experience. If a patient were to ask you who's about to start sunitinib, let's assume they have no cardiac history, no hypertension, let's say in their 60s, ask you, what's the chance I'm going to have a cardiac issue with sunitinib? I tell them it's low on the order of 1% to 3% if one includes all the risks of cardiovascular events as well as CHF. What about neoadjuvant systemic therapy pre-op? Is there any role for that? What do we know about that? There's been a few studies that have looked at this, and there have been some suggestions that neoadjuvant may make, quote, unresectable tumors resectable. I'm a little bit skeptical as to the clinical utility of that sort of approach, in large part because resectability is in the eye of the beholder, and the degree of shrinkage that one gets in large primary tumors with drugs like sunitinib or serafinib is rather modest. What kinds of clinical situations would you utilize an mTOR inhibitor up front as opposed to, say, sunitinib? I think in patients that have uh, overall poor prognosis by the general memorial Sloan-Kettering criteria, anemia, hypercalcemia, poor performance status, those are the type of patients I would certainly consider temsorolimus or an mTOR inhibitor up front. What do we know about those patients biologically, clinically? What fraction overall do you think they make up? I think they make up a rather small fraction of the entire population and I think that was one of the difficulties with the Temsorolimus phase 3 trial because, in fact, accrual was very slow in part because you had to be sick enough to meet the criteria for poor prognosis but not so sick that hospice and palliative care only would be most appropriate. And, in fact, in the Temsorolimus study, they expanded their definition of poor prognosis to include other patients not in that original nomogram simply to complete the trial. Do we know anything about the biology in these patients? They have a higher growth fraction or any reason sort of biologically why an mTOR inhibitor, say, would work better than VEGF-TKI? 
you know, we can speculate in regards to things like growth fraction and things like activation of the AKT pathway and so forth, but I think at this point it's just pure speculation. Could you compare the two available mTOR inhibitors in terms of method administration, side effects, toxicity, but also in terms of where you might utilize them in the sequence of agents in different patients? So temsorolimus is obviously approved only in the first-line setting in poor prognosis disease, and everolimus is approved for patients with uh, prior TKI, or more accurately, prior VEGFR TKI. Both of the drugs I would, though, consider to be modestly effective and more similar, I guess, than they are different. Temsorolimus happens to be given intravenously. Everolimus happens to be given orally. They have similar toxicity profile in regards to hyperglycemia, hypercholesterolemia, edema, mild stomatitis, and occasional pneumonitis. Can you talk a little bit more about those specifics in terms of what's seen clinically and how you monitor for these problems and what you do if they arise? Maybe starting out with the metabolic problem, then move on to the pneumonitis. Yeah, the metabolic problems are pretty common, and almost everybody gets some elevation of glucose and of the cholesterol and lipids. The patients who have either diabetes or what many of my patients euphemistically call diet-controlled diabetes are often the ones for whom this becomes most problematic because it turns a disease that doesn't need any treatment to one that does because their glucose goes high enough to cause significant problems. The lipids become less of a problem clinically, at least in the acute setting in which We're talking about patients who may have a limited lifespan, but we do occasionally get some of the triglycerides into levels where at least we're theoretically concerned about things like pancreatitis. What's the characteristic lipid abnormality that you see? Triglycerides tend to go up the most with the cholesterol also elevated, but less so. What about the pneumonitis? The pneumonitis is a more allergic interstitial pneumonitis that sometimes is clinically difficult to distinguish from infection or progressive disease in patients who have disease in their lungs. But it looks like any other drug-induced allergic pneumonitis and actually responds quite well to steroids. So is it an indication to discontinue the agent? If it's a mild pneumonitis, in other words, patient only has a cough, it's not hypoxic, we've actually been able to treat through the pneumonitis, although our practice has been to discontinue the agent, treat with steroids, and then restart the agent with some low-dose steroids. And what's the usual time sequence in terms of from the time you have to stop therapy to restarting it? With the use of steroids, one can often restart the therapy quite quickly because the patients respond usually within a week to the steroids. Now, is it your impression, because I've heard this stated and I'm not sure I've seen the data, that patients with mTOR inhibitors have increased risk for different types of infections? There is an increased risk, and one has to remember that the classic mTOR inhibitor to which all these drugs are related 
is serolimus, which is also known as rapamycin, which is marketed as a immune suppressant for patients with kidney transplants. And all of the mTOR inhibitors are pretty potent lymphotoxins. So yes, we do see infections and there is an increased risk for infections. And certainly lung infections is something that we have seen. What type of infections? It's always hard to tell. These are patients who come in with cough, low-grade fever, and some interstitial infiltrate. It's often difficult to distinguish whether these are patients that have an atypical viral or an atypical bacterial infection or whether this is a pneumonitis, and we'll sometimes just give them both you know, something like an erythromycin or an azithromycin and low-dose steroids and see if they improve. For both of these problems, the infections as well as the allergic pneumonitis, what's the time sequence? Is it usually the first course or they've been on it for a while? Most of the time we've seen it within the first couple of months of therapy, but it actually can be quite variable. Hmm. What about non-clear cell renal cell cancer? What do we know about that, particularly as it relates to response to systemic agents? The short answer is very little. The longer answer is that we've lumped, quote, non-clear cell as one category, but there's really no such category from a biology standpoint. There's clear cell carcinoma, there's papillary carcinomas, there's chromophobe carcinomas, there's translocation tumors, and then there's a whole bunch of tumors that are poorly differentiated and the pathologist can't tell you what they are, which subtype they are. And sometimes all these different groups are labeled together as, quote, non-clear. And I think that that's a little bit of a misnomer and actually does us a disservice in terms of how we think about this disease. So specifically, will you utilize the agents that we've been talking about today, including bevacizumab interferon in any of those patients? And how do you decide that? We will use them because there's not a heck of a lot of other drugs that are available I think that there's at least some suggestions that the mTOR inhibitors may have efficacy in things like papillary and chromophobe cancers. On the other hand, the expanded access protocol suggests that some of these patients will respond to VEGF pathway inhibitors as well. And given the fact that pathological expertise for distinguishing between these different subtypes varies from institution to institution, simply means that all of the data together is very difficult to interpret. So have you actually had patients who had clear-cut objective responses with these tumors? Yes, I've had papillary cancer patients who've had clear-cut responses to a VEGF inhibitor, and I've had chromophobe patients who've had clear-cut responses to an mTOR inhibitor, and vice versa. But these are all sort of at the level of an anecdote because there's simply not enough patients. 